0: Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I'm super excited to have with me Gautam Sagal. Gautam is CEO of Perkbox, a global employee experience and rewards platform servicing over four and a half thousand businesses. Before taking on the CEO spot, Gautam was COO and managing director at the company, where he was critical in scaling the operations from four to 200 people, and as of 2020, close to 73 and a half million in revenue. Prior to Perkbox, he transformed the struggling Thompson local, stabilizing the Financially drowning organization through a complete strategic, operational, and financial reorganization. Gotem, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to
1: be here.
0: Amazing. So look, let's dive straight in and and let's start with Thompson's Local. During your time there, you transformed a legacy print business to online, saved it from a potential creditors liquidation, and took it from a seven million cash loss all the way through to a million positive cash flow. You need to have a very different mentality when you're dealing with a business that's going through the ringer to that extent. So I'd love to understand what was your approach that whole period?
1: You know, I think one of the biggest insights that I learned, and I was the FD of Thompson before becoming CEO. One of the biggest insights I learned to start was that, you know, cost reduction doesn't come through cost reduction. It comes through simplification of your business. I'm really understanding on an activity-based costing approach, what drives cost in your business and what drives return. So there, there, there are three steps that we took at Thompson that I think, you know, apply more universally to trying to do that kind of a turnaround, which is really trying to understand what are the processes in your business that drive return and cost cost and, and, and how can you impact on them. What we found at Thompson originally was that the biggest cost driver was SME new business. And it was SME new business that had a churn rate that was extremely high in print directories. And by stopping that funnel entirely, we actually reduced a very significant proportion of cost and kept the company afloat for a year while we discussed with creditors what to do next. And that, of course, drove new business generation into the ground. But in the meantime, step one was limit the cost and limit the cash outflows. Then once we actually did the financial restructuring through a pre-pack. The second question was, what can we be? So we've stopped the bleeding, but what can we be that's relevant? And we started kind of trying to figure out, well, we had this kind of like bonsai tree. If we cut around the edges, what's the really, what's the core that remains as profitable and can can turn into something? And we found two areas that were interesting. Print directories were clearly not interesting and they were kind of hemorrhaging, but there were two areas of the business that were actually really interesting. One was data lists, B2B data lists, very high profit margin business, not particularly growing, but extremely high profit margin. And Stable. And the second one was digital advertising for SMEs. So setting up websites, doing SEM and SEO for small businesses. And that was exploding, lower margin than our historical business, but something we could be credible in. And so we focused all our ships on that. We focused on u- utilizing the cash that we had still coming in from print to focus entirely on building out this core proposition in a smaller market that we could, we could focus on and, and make profitable. And that's how we got to, that's how we stopped the bleeding and then turned it into a profitable business over time. Smaller, but profitable. So one of the
0: things you said that, which I think is a really good mental frame work, right? Or uh, well, a really good question to ask yourself, really in any business, right? What can we be that's relevant? Because it sounds like th- there are two sort of competing issues there. One is stop the bleeding, right? So so how do we restructure the business, take out costs such that we can at least tread water up until, you know, we come to some sort of arrangement with, with the creditors, as you say. But then next, it's what can we be that's relevant, which is actually the key question, right? Because ultimately you can stop costs, but if your business model is effectively not going anywhere uh, and you're a legacy business operating in a legacy world, then the only way to save that is, is that relevance, right? So how did you, I'd love to understand further how you actually, how you came to that understanding of what was relevance? Because it's one thing to look at a business and say, well, we're in a tech industry where we're in 30 different product lines. Actually, there's this one product line that is super relevant. Let's just double down on that. Versus we're in this legacy business where actually it's a completely different direction that we're going to have to head in. How, how do you kind of get that blank piece of paper and and start ideating as to what is that relevance? right because i imagine there are lots of things that you maybe maybe tried before you struck on struck on gold so i think you need to work from customer
1: backwards right so i mean what's the core use that you know print directories satisfy and how do do people satisfy today if that use is no longer where where investments are made so in our case it was okay well let's talk to a bunch of our customers our historically best customers and figure out where are they spending their advertising pounds today and if they're not spending it on print directories, where are they spending it where and do we have the assets to compete in the market where they're spending it now and in some cases the answer was a straight no like I mean, if, if, if we looked at our national accounts, they were kind of doing all kinds of really funky and you know, interesting lead generation that we couldn't really do. But to to um, smaller businesses, they were trying to attract people into their businesses by spending on websites. And we could absolutely work in that market. We had all the assets necessary. We had a database. We had the customer relationships. We had the operational kind of efficiencies to be able to do that. So really, it was a question of taking the same assets that we had and applying them to a different markets. And then to validate that, we took a look at business models that existed elsewhere. We looked at business models that existed particularly in the States. There were a couple of companies that were doing this from the ground up. And we're like, okay, we can be that. We can't be print directors anymore, but we can kind of transition to this new thing and be that. Now that sounds easy. The truth is what you find is you need to change, re-engineer all your processes. But if you work from the customer backwards, you have a chance of doing that.
0: Yeah, you and I have talked a lot about customers. That's something that we'll, we'll definitely talk about down the track. But okay, so moving on to Perkbox, you first joined as COO, right? So Chief Operating Officer and helped grow the business from 1 million to 24 million ARR and grow the team by 4X, four, four right? Like, what did you need to focus on first, right? Was it the culture or was it the operations? And and I, I think there's a clear distinction between the two, even though there is an interlinking there. But you can scale operations without scaling culture necessarily. It just might not work as well. So yeah, where, where did you focus first?
1: So I'd tell you this. I mean, like, you can focus on the culture or not focus on it. It will create itself. You, you either intervene to create something that you want that reflects what you are or you don't and it creates itself. I think we focused on the operations first. I'm not so sure though that was the right I call, but we clearly focused on the operations first, and the culture kind of fed itself for a while. Didn't necessarily go you know the wrong direction, but you know ne- not necessarily either reflecting exactly what we wanted at the time. But we focused on the operations first because, frankly, when you're proceeding at, at that pace, you're kind of laying the track while the train is running, and that's that's what consumes you most of all.
0: And I guess ultimately, this was a business that had been founded several years earlier. You had joined kind of at that inflection point as as the scale was being created, and and to an extent, maybe some of that culture. Already existed, you know, was in the founder's DNA, if you like, and or in the DNA of the business via the founders, and therefore maybe a bit harder to create from scratch or harder to kind of impose a new culture on, on the business, right? So I'd be really interested to understanding how that switch then happened coming into sort of 2020 when you took on the CEO role, where the business was very different from when you had joined originally and had moved away from a founder led business to now effectively an external CEO. So no longer the founder as CEO. CEO. It'd be really interesting to understand how that switch was navigated, if you like, and, and you know, how you're able to bring along the people under a different style of leadership. I mean, it's something we hear about in trillion dollar businesses like Microsoft and, you know, Satya Nadala or Tim Cook at Apple, et cetera. But, you know, we also know Facebook, as an example, still has the founder as a CEO. So there are huge challenges, I would imagine, in moving on from that founder-led model. I'd love to understand how you, how you guys navigated that. I think,
1: I mean, first of all, like we did it step-by-step. Step, so, you know, First, I became managing director in 2019 and and Saurav remained CEO. And then after that, I became CEO in 2020 and he became exec chairman, which he still is. So it was a step-by-step approach. It was quite planned. It was then primarily because we realized that the state of the business was in a different place from where it was two years prior. And actually, the skill set that I had was very useful in navigating that current environment because it was less about reaching out and creating consistently new products and more about focusing on something that we were uniquely good at. And that kind of mirrored a little bit a situation I had. Through before, so it made it made sense to proceed in that manner. But it was done you know step by step. There was nothing done particularly quickly. It, even though it must have seemed quick to everybody else. The truth is it was a two year it was a two year kind of move. Yeah, well I guess that's testament,
0: right? Because that which looks quick but is done seamlessly is probably a lot better than that which is done quickly and is done quickly <laughs> without thought to kind of what what impact it has on people. So so look, so moving on then, I guess, to the business itself, right? In twenty twenty it grew top line by like over twenty percent, twenty one percent, and moved from a fairly substantial loss at $8 million to around one point eight in in pre-tax profit, and all of this during the pandemic. So just talk us through, in a similar way, I guess, to, to maybe Thompson's Local, right? Talk us through the levers that had to be pulled to achieve that.
1: So again, I'd say like the, the pattern of thought was not dissimilar to what I'd done before, which was, okay, let's try and figure out what are the areas here that are driving complexity and cost. And at Perkbox, it was very different from Thompson, because Perkbox was a healthy growing company anyway. But we had certainly diversified into numerous products and into numerous segments in- In terms of customer types. And when you do that, you drive a lot of complexity and cost. And we realized the returns that we were getting from all these products, features, and and, and segments weren't the same. There were clearly areas where we were clear winners, and there were other areas that were question marks, and there were other areas, again, where, frankly, we were losing money. So it became fairly simple to de-layer and and scale back the business to the areas where we were really, really good. And the areas we were really good at were Brooks benefits and rewards and recognition. We were less good, even though we had a viable product and insight and we had in, in terms of um, in segments we were less good at the very SME and so we decided to scale back from there by doing that you delay the business you know very significantly you reduce the headcount very significantly even over time through attrition without really having to intervene you you take out cost that's both fixed and variable because you're no longer spending on marketing methods to generate customers that don't provide you a yield and it's actually a much less onerous a much less invasive way of restructuring a company focusing and the benefit of it is you get more resource to focus on the things that you're uniquely good at so you actually drive execution in that much further uh, at the same time. So that's something I, I, I took as a pattern of thought from Thompson for sure. Focused on, okay, well, how do I make this business less complex? Because complexity drives cost. How do I focus on something we're uniquely good at and relevant for the customer and something where we can win? And how do I double down all the resources
0: only on that? And that's the approach that we took. This is this is typical startup 101 and albeit that Perkbox is a scale up. The number of decks or models that I've either built or seen or looked at or whatever that contain, you know, even at very early... Stages. well, we're going to do these five or six different things, which is going to generate masses of revenue. And you sort of step back and say, well, if you're not focused, then if you're not focused on one thing, you're not focused on anything, right? And there is that, I guess, that creep over time within the product set and within, you know, the customer base that that leads to exactly what you discussed, which is potentially a lack of visibility over the metrics and the unit economics and the drivers of each of those segments, whether they're the products or the customers. But equally, when you're very busy, it's very easy to just sort of put everything down to, what. Well, these are scaling problems and, you know, we'll scale our way out of them, which can be very difficult. And just as a complete kind of aside, then I'd I'd love to understand whether at Perkbox, you had the tools to understand those product by product, customer by customer segment analyses, or whether those were things that you had to then actually intentionally build in order to gain the insights. To allow you to make those decisions, because I feel like dashboarding and kind of financial analysis are given less than their fair share, and I'm, I'm obviously biased in this area, but are given less than their fair share of of, of time amongst uh, startups and scaleups. Would you agree? Or as I say, was it? W- did you have to build the tools, or the tools already in place? No, we had to build them, and it wasn't it wasn't particularly easy either. And for
1: that matter, you get a, you get into a lot of negotiation or discussion debate around well, if you're driving activity-based costing, for example, you're trying to figure out well, what part of complexity drives well, there's so many ways to skin a cat in terms of where you allocate stuff. So you get to long debates about that, and it's very hard to kind of read. So you you need to proceed relatively slowly and really kind of focus on what you're clear drives value first, and leave the rest to later. And then work customer backwards on that part that drives value and figure out what you can what you can actually build with that and where you can focus your resources to have an even better yield at the end. So some of it is satisfying rather than optimizing, frankly. But you know that's that's the approach that you have to take. Some some of the questions are unclear at best and you have only you know
0: 30% of the data you need to
1: make a call But you need to make it
0: anyway. So it's not just build fast and break things. I guess it's, it's sort of learn fast and build quicker, right? Something along those lines. So, I mean, you, you touched on this, but I imagine there must've been a huge shift in the product suite during the pandemic. So you talked about actually a reduction in, in the number of products, but then... Equally, you you kind of need to constantly be on your toes, right? Because there are always newer, younger, faster, you know, more hungry startups out there. Like, how does an established venture like Perkbox innovate during during a period like the pandemic?
1: So, like I said, there, there there are two steps that I think are applicable in any business. One is okay, figure out where you're relevant, where you can double down, and focus your resources on that. That's one, and that could come in conjunction with a financial reengineering or a cost reengineering. It doesn't have to, but it can. Then the second step is talk to your best customers, like all of them, work backwards from what they're trying to do and figure out how you can be uniquely interesting to them. Now, what we found when we did that was that our best customers, the best customers as defined as the ones who would stick with us the longest. We asked them, well, why are you with us? Like, what do you want from us? And the answer we got back wasn't necessarily the answer we thought we were going to get back. And the answer we got back was harmonization of benefits. And what we'd really like from you is to be able to harmonize benefits across the world because nobody can offer that to us. And we were were at most a multi-domestic provider benefits and rewards in terms of the UK, France, and Australia. And what we did was use that time to re-architect our business to become inherently global and location agnostic. By doing that, we can satisfy, we can't satisfy the wide scope of types of customers we were dealing with two years ago, but that much narrower segment of customers of a certain size, of a certain kind of ideal customer profile, we can be uniquely relevant to them. And we focused all of our resources on that. And that's where we are today. We have the only kind of a location agnostic platform for benefits and rewards for that kind of segment globally.
0: Yeah. And to your point, that that naturally means that, you know, you're not going to be playing in the same space in terms of the, the, the customers, as you said, right? Like there will be smaller SMEs or even kind of micro businesses whereby your product suite maybe doesn't make as much sense to them as a business with, let's say, hundred plus employees in several locations, right? But those are choices. It's it's a strategic choice to go after what is going to be value generative rather than, you know, or value accretive rather than what is going to destroy value. Because again, if you're going after those smaller customers, they tend to be harder to manage. They tend to be painful. They tend to not direct Drive as much to the top line or to margins, and therefore they are actually destroying value in the business rather than creating it. Even though they look really kind of fun and attractive because there's so many of them.
1: And today we did a we did a kickoff today, and one of the thought processes I had, which I think is very true, is that you know if you look at a business purely from the sense of an Excel spreadsheet, then you'd convince yourself that the marginal product and the marginal customer type is always useful to you in your business plan because you can model something that works. The truth is, all great businesses start with empathy and not with an Excel sheet. So you work backwards from a customer and figure out what they need. From you, what they, what they, what their pain point is, and then you optimize for that, not for your Excel sheet.
0: Yeah, this is a hill that I'm sure both of us could probably die on. Excel sheets are not your business, albeit that they can, they can help. So, actually, I mean, you and I have talked previously about external financing, right? So, like taking venture capital, etc. Talk us through your thoughts on venture. Why should founders think twice before taking the check? Or has your thinking maybe changed over the last several years?
1: I mean, I don't. You know, I think um, you know people. People view it as like in, in ends rather than a means. And that's a problem because it's not, it's not like it, all it is is financing of a type to serve a purpose to you as an entrepreneur. Now that can be really useful if you're scaling in a certain way, it can be extremely useful. In fact, if you have a business that's effectively a monopoly of some kind based on network effects, then, you know, for all, you know, absolutely raise a ton of money, spend it on very quickly building the first monopoly of that type. The truth is most businesses aren't like that though. And so what you get is a lot of people trying to raise venture money that aren't really appropriate for that kind kind of finance. And, you know, venture venture funding, you know, it's it's kerosene for a jet. If you don't have a jet, don't take kerosene. It's that simple, really. Your objective is just to build a healthy business that's growing that satisfies the customer need. That's it. And it's just, it's just an It's just a means to an end. It's not the end itself.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that it has become such a desirable achievement, let's say, f- from the perspective of many founders is because there's so much positive, almost boosterism within the community, whether that's amongst VCs or... Whether that's on Twitter, whether that's via TechCrunch and so on, and you kind of, as a founder, I'm, I, I think you get this sort of impression. Well, if I haven't raised venture, then I'm, there's something wrong with me, or there's something wrong with my business. I've been fortunate enough to have bootstrapped one business and 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 have raised a little bit of external capital on another. Apart from you know the, the businesses that I work with, and I have to be honest, like it's a very different feeling once you've taken other people's money. Like there is a path that you're on. There's this thing like
1: that nobody really thinks of. Once you've once you've taken other people's money. You- You've guaranteed an exit of some kind, and if you're not if you're not prepared to do to guarantee that day one, because you have whether you like it or not, then don't take it. And there's, that's not to say that it's wrong to take it, but you should have that discussion with yourself as to whether that's what you want to be doing.
0: Yeah, full disclosure here, I guess Gotem is an angel in in one of my businesses, so he and I are probably going to have a bit of a conversation after this <laughs> about his expectations on exit. No, I mean, I think what's really wonderful at the moment is there are certainly more avenues to raising, and I think raising capital is the wrong way of of even thinking about it but there is more access to capital and diverse mechanisms to receive that capital than there were even sort of 5 years ago if you think about revenue based financing venture debt uh, obviously venture capital if you think about in the UK the the EIS and SCIS tax benefits that uh, investors get there's a whole kind of ecosystem now i think of alt lending that didn't exist even sort of 5 years ago i
1: think one of the things that like on reflection more entrepreneurs should or CEOs for that matter should keep in mind is you know raising finance is is it's not glamorous because people th- Seem to think that, that somehow you have to do it because there's glamour involved. It's just money. That's all it is. There's no glamour to it. What's glamorous is solving a problem for a customer and, and creating a really valuable business that way. But the money is just a route to doing
0: that or a mechanism to do
1: that. And really that's all it is. It's just money.
0: Yeah, it's to your point, it's the means, it's not the end, right? It is a one would hope it is a punctuation mark in, in the journey of your business. It is not, you know, the be all and the end all. And I think that's a really sensible way of looking at it. And I think obviously we're recording this podcast sort of early February 2022. It feels like Like we're heading into a bit of a downturn in the markets. Certainly we've had some downturns in the market, both in the public markets, as well as the crypto space, as well as probably in the private investment space. And I think the really capital efficient founders are the ones that will succeed because those that are burning cash hand over fist are going to struggle to raise more of the same as as we move forward. And I think there'll be a bit of a slowdown there. So yeah, I, I, I fully subscribe to your viewpoint there. I think it's really important as a founder to think very hard about why you're taking money and who you're taking money. From and the journey and the path, as you say, that that puts you on because not only actually does it does it push you towards an exit of whatever nature that is, but if you take venture funding, it also puts a timescale on it and a quite significantly short timescale on it because most funds are going to be looking to exit their positions in the next seven years. If the
1: characteristics of your business like make that you know a reasonable thing to do, then by all means you should. But
0: like I don't think
1: people ask themselves that question enough.
0: Typically, I 100 agree. So look, one of, one of the things about this podcast is that it's it's about taking a risk, right? I mean, like I launched this on the back of I'm a bit bored during lockdown. Let's see if we can have some interesting conversations, see where it goes. And hey, ho, we're in season two. It's a bit crazy. But as a scale up, the sort of risks that you're taking at Perkbox are massively different from a venture at the start of its journey, right? How do you keep up that that innovative spirit and calculated risk taking in a way that doesn't jeopardize the business? Because you talked about obviously focus on the customer and working backwards from them. and, And I get that. But there has to be room for people to be able to experiment and play. And I'm, I'm really curious as to how in a scaled organization like Perkbox, that's still achievable.
1: I think, you know, this is something that I was not particularly attuned to when I started as CEO and actually, you know, Sara, our exec chairman had to really kind of provide me with some guidance on this. And I spoke to a number of people external to the organization who were chief revenue officers and so on. One of them really gave me this fantastic advice. And it basically, he was saying, you know, as, as organizations get larger, they forget that their objectives to solve a problem. Problem for a customer. So, as a CEO, what you really need to do to make sure that your organization continues to innovate is to be seen talking to customers. Talk to your top 100, and I asked him, "Is like, well, you know, do you think I should be getting product ideas from this? Like, what's the?" And he was like, actually no, because I mean, really, it's your product people need to get product ideas, not you. I mean, you, you might have some, that's great, but what you're trying to drive is demonstrate to everyone that the customer is the center of your organization. Breathe into the company the ethos of customer centricity, and when you do that, that. Then experiments mean something. Then, then the journey of like solving for a customer means something. And that's how you innovate. You, you innovate by focusing on what the problem and the pain point is and really being empathetic with the customer about that and then driving that into your business. Like I said, you don't innovate because the business case on Excel tells you to. You'll innovate by doing that, but you'll just do a series of things that you're not particularly good at and that have no relevance. You'll innovate very well when you talk to a set of customers and isolate from those conversations the one or two things that they're all telling you that they don't get from someone else. What we heard when we did that was, you know, no one's giving us global perks and benefits and you know we're a 100 person company 150 person company no one's servicing on that we, we have the same complexities a much larger organization could you do that for us and we realized wow Greenfield Greenfield opportunity that's how I think you, you drive the culture of innovation into a company of our size right it's inherent in a smaller company in a company of our size it's, you really need to make sure the focus remains on the customer because after a certain point the focus will shift to processes to finance to revenue and really the focus of a business is on the customer the rest is an output of
0: that and I think that I mean, to be honest, it doesn't really matter on the size of the business. I mean, that, that piece of advice, solve a problem for a customer is relevant from day zero all the way through to exit, right? There is no there is no time where that does not stand true. It's the reason businesses exist. But I mean, after a while, success will wash that away as a consideration. And if
1: you want to drive innovation to business, I obviously don't have, I can't speak to larger businesses, but yeah, of course it's the same. Your job is to solve problems for customers. and The closer you are to customers as a senior exec member, the, the, the more everyone else will See, our ethos is based on keeping the customer at the center. And that's how we drive experimentation, that's how we drive empathy, that's how we drive listening to what the problem is, and that's how
0: we drive figuring out what we can do that our competition cannot. I think that's really incredibly sage advice. And I'm just I was just thinking whilst you're talking about like, can I think of larger organizations that are currently going through a bit of a paradigm shift where they are no longer solving a problem for a customer? And the, the one that actually sprang to mind was Facebook or Meta as it's now known, in that the DAUs are down, the daily active users are down, they're not attracting new users because. Kind of millennials and Gen Z and are, are not necessarily looking at Facebook. They're on Snap and, and other products, and you know they shifted into Meta. But again, that's ten years away because at the moment there are no customers for Meta, right? So I think that's a really interesting way of, of framing and boiling down. If I'm honest, the whole purpose of business, right, which is solve a problem for a customer. That's right, absolutely. That's the only reason businesses exist. But somehow that becomes
1: murky later on. But it's, it's the only it's the only reason you have. There are no. There's no such thing as a business without customers. There just isn't one. Or if they. <laughs> If
0: there is, they certainly don't last very long. Well, it's not a business, right? It's 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 an exercise in vanity, probably. I think I'm going to have to print that out and put it down on my wall because it is something I need to remind myself of quite frequently, I think. Not not that I uh, not that I don't think about it, but it just helps to have something very short and concise that, that you can look at and think, okay, well, am I solving a problem for a customer? And if I'm not, then maybe I should be doing something else. Gotem, it's been absolutely amazing having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a really thoughtful conversation. For our listeners, where's the best place for them to find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? Are you elsewhere? I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and easily contactable on that as well. Amazing. to. thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day ahead. Thanks a lot, Aris, too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventured.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes, and thanks again for your support.